1: The Guardian We
2: Brits are obsessed with the weather I don't think I could go one day without mentioning the weather, especially if it's sunny And it feels like we're never quite
0: happy It's either too hot, too cold, too muggy, too windy The list goes on
2: But we're always happier when we're able to plan ahead for the weather, whether that means wearing an extra layer on leaving the house for that day or knowing what to pack for a holiday. Unfortunately, getting the most accurate forecast isn't that simple.
3: So the Cray computer in itself has about a million lines of computer coding. And for this to work, the computer runs 16 trillion calculations per second.
0: Even with trillions of calculations per second, no one has managed to forecast with 100% accuracy. But there are companies out there which say they can provide the most precise forecast over any other institution with a combination of traditional forecasting methods and new technology. They're trying to basically
4: tap into the many, many devices around the world. So smartphones, Internet of Things devices, uh, and using signals from those to get a more accurate forecast. The promise is basically to turn
0: everything into a weather sensor. I'm Jordan Erica Weber.
2: And I'm Grey Jackson.
0: And this week, Chips with Everything is teaming up with our sister
2: podcast, Science Weekly, to take a look at the history of weather forecasting and its potential future, which may require the likes of you and I to hand over a bunch of data in return for the perfect weather forecast. This is Science With Everything. Hello. Hi, Claire. Hello. Hi, it's Greer from The Guardian. How are you? Hi, Greer. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. How about yourself? This is Claire Nasir. She's a meteorologist at the Met office, which is perfect because the guy who invented weather forecasting also founded the Met Office. His name was Admiral Robert Fitzroy, and Claire says he was driven by the massive loss of life at sea. Between 1855 and 1860, over 7,000 people
3: perished at sea. Lots of ships were lost during this time, and it was down to a few brave, hearty souls who thought, this can't just be coincidence, it can't be just an issue of fate There has to be something to do with weather patterns where we can perhaps prevent people from dying or crashing into the rocks because of storms and one particular person that comes to mind is admiral robert fitzroy and he really was the forefather when it comes to weather forecasting he was actually more well remembered to be honest in the day as Charles Darwin's captain on the HMS Beagle. Ah oh, yes, I knew I'd had the name before and it was backing me. That's right, yes. Back
2: then, sailors relied on experience. Gathering clouds might mean a storm is a-coming, and the Victorians also relied on animals for forecasting. Wait, animals. Yeah, there's not much information out there on this, but take a look at this picture.
0: This guy looks like, so. is he wearing like a nightcap? He's holding a jar, like a jam jar, with a frog inside the jar and what appears to be a ladder
2: is the ladder for the frog. The ladder is for the frog, yeah. So basically the frog would climb the ladder if the weather was good and when conditions were going to be bad, supposedly, it would climb back down the ladder and into the water to weather out the worst of the storm. That's a hell of a thermometer,
0: isn't it? Just imagine everyone with jars in their windowsills with frogs in them. I actually really l- frogs used to be my favourite animal, but I replaced them with squids, um, because intelligence. But honestly this makes frogs
2: seem pretty smart. <laughs> I don't know how to respond. That's to fine, that. don't <laughs> Animal intelligence aside, Jordan, the real big thing that came in and changed and turned this all around was the telegraph. It meant that Admiral Robert Fitzroy could gather weather in real time and then dispatch that information to ports. So if a gale was detected in, say, the Isle of Man and it was heading east, he could alert the ports in Liverpool to it, and then the port could raise the alarm by raising a flag or something.
3: Obviously, with a little bit of technology and being able to... Extend that information further afield. We were able to say, yes, there's something happening here and that could happen to you, say, down the line. And how accurate was that? That it's happening here and therefore it might blow over to you kind of prediction? Well, I think with the electric telegraph, it was more such a bewildering technology. It took a long time for people to really understand what it was. But initially, it did help. And that really caught on, really, particularly in in the UK. And before long, we saw our first weather forecast in a newspaper, and that was in 1861. That was the Times. So, yes, it really caught on. Not always correct, and a lot of time it wasn't, but certainly I think once the British people really got... An understanding of what could be done with weather forecasting. A lot of other people caught on, and it, you know, it, it's it's our favourite subject, isn't it? To be honest, <laughs> Gray, everybody wants to talk about it. And then I think a lot of things took a long time to settle down. About how do we measure, say, temperature, but also things like pressure. It wasn't really until the mid 1860s that another scientist called Alexandra Buchan joined the dots of pressure and. That pressure became an isobars, and then we understood that there were discrete areas where the pressure would drop, the pressure would rise, and associated weather with that, hence cold fronts, warm fronts, high pressure, low pressure. So it was a very slow process during the, the late 1800s into the 1900s, then, obviously two world wars broke out, and during that time... Technology not only escalated, communications not only escalated, but it was much more vital that we understood where we were going with the weather forecast. So
0: forecasting very much relied on making an observation – making some kind of of back-of-the-envelope calculations and then communicating a prediction.
2: Yeah, Fitzroy calculated them by hand with very little data, so you can imagine how forecasts would go awry. The next big step in making better predictions, though, was modelling. Now, when I asked Claire about this, I was expecting her to talk about supercomputers. But actually, the forefathers of computer modelling imagined how to do this with people as computers.
3: So there was an amazing scientist called Lewis Fry Richardson and he visualised many, many people in a room doing hundreds of calculations which in turn would interpret how the atmosphere would change over, say, 24 hours or so. There was a concept there, there was an understanding there and a desperation for for the technology to move on so we could really understand and model the atmosphere in such a way that... It would take less time to forecast the weather before the weather actually happened. So, say in the 1950s, it would take a day to compile a day's forecast.
2: Wow! Um, and and how many people would be doing that?
3: Well, hundreds of people. And that's the thing is, you know, the Met Office was established well before that, and it's grown and grown. Now, nowadays, I work in a, in a fantastic environment with thousands of scientists and forecasters and observers. Um, All passionate about the weather and we're all sharing our data elsewhere. But this is something which has taken time. But today we
2: do rely on computers. And it's lucky we do because every day the Met Office receives around half a million observations of temperature, humidity and many other atmospheric variables.
3: There's a huge amount of observation data which is out there. My first job I ever did in the Met Office was observe the clouds. So that's one form of observation. Another form of observation is what's happening perhaps in the sky when pilots are flying, they're picking up information. Shipping lanes are picking up information. We have something called radiosondes or weather balloons, which we release every day, which push up into the upper atmosphere and they take readings of temperature, humidity, wind speed, etc., which is vital data that then we can analyse, not only as forecasters, but also they get into the the computer models. So observations take many forms so yes all that information gets added to the initial conditions on on a computer model.
2: Okay and talk me through this computer model. Is it just sort of running through simulations of what could happen and pick the most likely? What's it
3: doing? Well the computer model is based on a set of equations which tries to model the atmosphere uh, they're called the primitive equations, and they are nonlinear, which means nothing really goes in a straight line, which, as we know, it doesn't. But it really sort of tries to approximate a global atmospheric flow. And so we've got different aspects to that. We've got the momentum. We've got the thermal energy. We've got the pressure rises and falls. We've got to take into consideration gravity, friction. So all these forces get pushed into this, these equations and then we run these computer models, adding all this data to these equations and out pops a solution at the other end. But obviously it's not as simple as that. <laughs> I was going to say the equations you're talking about,
2: are they the same equations that people would have been doing in the 50s that you described? These hundreds of people doing these equations. I imagine them in a back room, busy, 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 somehow like a stock exchange. I don't know why that imagery comes to mind. It does, but, doesn't <laughs> <it>? <laughs> but is that the kind of thing that these
3: supercomputers are doing? On one level, it is. And it's incredible, really, because that's how we used to do it. And that's the most amazing thing about what computers do nowadays. Here at the Met Office, we use supercomputers. So the Craig computer is one of 20 most powerful computers in the world. And I think our weather computer is the most powerful weather computer in the world. And let me give you some big numbers here, because it's absolutely immense. They look like Massive TARDISes, you know, I don't know if that's the plural (laughs) TARDIS, but you can imagine Doctor Who dipping in and out of one and then the other. So, the Cray computer in itself has about a million lines of computer coding. And for this to work, the computer runs 16 trillion calculations per second, or 16 petaflops. And let me put that in perspective that's two million calculations for every man, woman, child on this planet. Every second. (laughs) That is astonishing.
2: Just talk me through refining. I know refining is a really important element of tweaking these models.
3: Every day we see the output of computer models. Here at the Met Office, there's a a host of weather forecasters and scientists who are analysing this data. But we do know where there are weaknesses in the model model. So it's up to the expertise of the chief forecaster and his team to see where the model is weak and then add value and tweak, refine those computer models or then add that information back into the computer and run it again. Do you mm. see what I'm saying? Mm. Is this like, there's a human and, and computer sort of partnership going on here and both play a very important role when it comes to weather forecasting.
2: How accurate are our weather forecasts today? I read in the paper that only recently that, you know, we were supposed to have some Spanish tunnel of wind and that for May and we're going to have gloriously hot weather, but that doesn't seem to have materialised. So how accurate
3: is our weather forecast and how often do we get it wrong? It's something in the 90% for temperature forecast, 24-hour and 3-day forecast. That's how good it is. And then it slips down the further away we get from day one. So it is very, very good. And the accuracy keeps improving, but there will always be days where we get it wrong.
2: Now, I really want to know how we can make a better prediction of the weather.
0: But 90% accuracy is pretty good.
2: Yeah, there's still room for improvement though. And also that 90% refers to the temperature predictions. So 92% of their next day forecasts are accurate to within 2 degrees centigrade. But then their rain predictions for the next day are only right about 75% of the time.
0: After the break, we'll look at one startup that is taking the idea of gathering more data and using it to, as they say, revolutionize weather forecasting. We'll be back after this.
1: Normally, being a little extra might be a
4: bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash acast. That's 15% off at borough.com slash acast. Welcome
2: back to Science with Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and I'm Craig Jackson. Before the break, we took a trip down memory lane to look at the history of weather forecasting. Meteorologist Claire Nazir told us how the Met Office predicts the weather with three key steps. First, through observing and collecting vast amounts of information about the climate right now. Secondly, modelling, putting those data points through a computer model to create a forecast. And thirdly, refining. Meteorologists tweak the model's predictions based on their own knowledge and expertise. Claire explained that the technology used in
0: forecasting is getting better, but some of her colleagues have been quoted in the past as saying that we will never be able to reach 100% accuracy. But there are some who suspect we can still do better. Exactly. A weather tech startup in Boston called Climacell claims to have figured out how to use various new technologies to create a forecasting system with fewer errors. We did invite someone from the company to come on the show, but unfortunately they didn't have time. They did, however, answer our questions with some links to press releases and blog posts. But I was also interested to hear from a journalist who's written about WeatherTech in the past. My name's Charlotte G,
4: and I'm a reporter for MIT Technology Review.
0: I started by asking Charlotte to tell me a bit more about Climacell. So Climacell was founded in 2015, so they're they're
4: fairly recent, based in Boston. And they basically claim that they found a way to make weather forecasting much, much more accurate. So it's currently mainly based on um, satellite data and other sort of sensor data. And they're trying to basically tap into the many, many devices around the world. So smartphones, Internet of Things devices, uh, and using signals from those to get a more accurate forecast. However, precisely how they're doing that is still a little bit unclear but the promise is basically to turn everything into a weather sensor
0: that's the way that they put it. So it's always fun when companies coin terms you know when they come up with catchy new phrases and Climacell is no different they've trademarked the term micro weather so Mm -hmm. what is micro weather? So that would basically be a weather
4: forecast down to a very very precise degree so normally weather forecasts can be Many, many meters, hundreds of meters, maybe even miles out. Whereas this is talking about getting it right, right down to this sort of precise street level, for example. That
0: is what they're promising. In May, ClimaCell launched CBAM, which stands for ClimaCell's Bespoke Atmospheric Model, or as they like to call it, ClimaCell Badass Model. Badass. <laughs> yeah, I know. But putting the name aside, they say their technology is revolutionary. Um, it's all about the
4: precision, from my understanding. It's all about getting a forecast that is uh, very exact. So that would be quite useful for airlines, for for example, um, for football uh, matches or other sports <laughs> matches. Um, there's seriously big business in this area because it's it's just worth a lot of money if you can actually produce that. But it's One caveat I'd add is that this is an area that a lot of startups have actually been trying to crack before. And whether or not they can do it, I would inject a little bit of scepticism personally. I think it sounds very exciting. It does sound promising. But until we really get the ability to um, drill into precisely how they're doing it, I would just reserve a bit of judgment.
0: I get where Charlotte is coming from here. We asked Climacell exactly how the technology works. And after reading through the various press releases and blog posts, I'm still not sure. Basically, they've said they're using infrastructure that is already in existence. So, wireless signals that power cell phones and media communications, millions of connected vehicles reporting parameters such as temperature, wiper status and fog lights, satellite to ground microwave signals, street cameras which will use machine learning to analyse images and... For example, infer precipitation conditions, Internet of Things devices, and good old-fashioned airplanes and drones, which transmit wind, humidity and temperature data.
2: It sounds like a lot of these won't physically be measuring the weather, though, like the humidity or temperature. They're inferring what it might be like. Right, and Charlotte explained that they'll
0: have to go through all of this data to turn it into something useful. I think the way to think of it is that
4: they're not going to be using just signals from that. They're going to be using those as a proxy for something else, if you mm. see what I mean. So they're going to be kind of triangulating the data. I imagine, I should really add that as a caveat, I, I don't have that deep insight into precisely how their their business is working. Um, but they're not just going to be taking all that raw data and, and then putting that back out as a weather forecast.
2: So with all their promises to create more accurate forecasts, Did they provide a percentage that we could compare to the Met Office's 90-odd percent accuracy? Not that I could see. But they argue that
0: one of the problems with traditional weather forecasting is that it isn't equal. In some parts of the world, lack of infrastructure means that people don't have access to forecasts that
2: others in more developed areas might get. Hang on. If the idea is that we can democratise weather forecasting, so predictions for everyone even in remote areas... How can those areas possibly have access to the millions of connected cars or smartphones or drones or street cameras? Well, I'm not entirely
0: sure. Climacell says it's turning existing infrastructure into weather sensors. So if it isn't there in the first place, I don't see how it can be used by the company. Charlotte did, however, make an interesting point about how they might get data from wireless signals.
4: Everywhere in the world, and, and definitely in the developing world as well, you will still get smartphones. So if they're using sort of smartphones more widely as a a proxy for, um, for forecasting weather, then I can see how that actually could be viable. But yeah, certainly I can't really see there being sort of tons of people driving around very high tech driverless cars in, you know, different remote parts of the world. But yeah, I definitely in terms of people using smartphones and stuff like that, that kind of does make sense.
0: Right. But if so, if Climacell is going to use things like smartphones, Internet of Things, devices, cars, this is obviously going to ring alarm bells for people um, with regards to privacy. And now when we asked Climacell about this, they sent us to a blog post in which they've written in capital letters, we never get exposed to any private data, full stop, ever. They also say that they're compliant with GDPR and they've been cleared by regulators in multiple countries to handle these kinds of data. So does that mean I should stop worrying?
4: Even if you're not looking for personally identifiable information, you could potentially still find it if you're looking at a volume of data that large. So I think it is a risk, definitely.
0: And the reason I'm talking to you about this in particular is because you wrote an article back in January about how the city of Los Angeles is suing the Weather Channel app, accusing it of collecting, sharing and selling users location data without their consent. So in this particular instance, what data have they been accused of selling and who were they supposedly selling it to? Uh, location data, email
4: addresses, um, IMEI identification numbers, which basically ties you to your your exact mobile phone to data brokers. So this is kind of a shady world of middlemen who buy and sell people's data. Uh, so in honesty, we don't
0: we don't really know who anyone anyone who wants to buy it basically. I should point out that the company behind the Weather Channel app disputes this allegation and, when asked, said it has always been transparent in its use of location data.
2: So we don't know who was supposedly buying the data in this particular case, but why would data from a weather app be useful to anyone? generally speaking probably advertisers people who want to
4: know where the locate what the locations are that people tend to gather at so they want to look at sort of how people are moving and the patterns uh, and so then that way they can say right well we should be putting these adverts in this location because these people are most likely to see it i'm kind of massively simplifying it Mm -hmm. but that that's basically the logic it's so people can sell stuff
2: to you Obviously, we all want better weather forecasts. And just to say that Climacell haven't been accused of using data in any negative way. But obviously, I'd still want to be a bit careful about where my data goes.
0: Yeah, and as someone who likes to dress for the weather, I don't think I could stop using weather apps altogether. So Charlotte gave us some tips on how to better protect our data. I think the best way forward is actually to go onto a website to search for, search
4: the weather forecast and type in your address manually which takes mm. longer but it means that they're not using your GPS tracker. The simple answer is this is so symptomatic of the broader trade-off between conveni- convenience and privacy in that you know if you are using something like that that's really easy and it's one click generally speaking that's because you've given
0: it access to all of your mm-hmm. all of your different other apps so yeah Lastly, one of our colleagues suggested that weather apps should go in the direction of traffic apps or some traffic apps where users can send in updates of high traffic spots or accidents. Do you think there's a future in weather forecasting for user generated content like this and and would it work?
4: I'm certain that people are going to be working on that already. I'll tell you what, a really interesting area where that's being tried in terms of user-generated content is actually in terms of natural disasters. And that's something that is, is being worked on and developed right now where people can say, like, this is the level of earthquake that I've experienced or uh, this is sort of, a, if there's been a tsunami or something like that, people can report how serious it was. They can take photos of the damage. They can share them. So, yeah, definitely there, there is something to be said for that. I think for weather specifically, though, it's it's actually not necessarily as reliable as using the official sources. So for now, although it's a nice idea, I'd probably
0: stick with the Met Office over <laughs> Steve from Crawley. <laughs> okay, noted. <laughs> Since you've got deep into weather tech for this, do you have any predictions for the uh, upcoming summer in London? Should I get my shorts out? Uh, yeah, it's going to be absolutely glorious. I mean, this is based on no real expertise, but just a hunch. It's going to be It's going <laughs> to be great. <laughs> <Thank you.
1: laughs>
0: Now, with some of the tech we discuss on this podcast, there are reasonable arguments to suggest that if we want to avoid potential risks to our privacy, then we could just go without. So people often say that about social media, right? Stop complaining, just stop using it. But I feel like weather forecasting is the kind of thing that is pretty crucial and will only become more so given the climate crisis. I will definitely continue to use weather apps and hope that they become more accurate, But I will also follow Charlotte's advice and only ever type in my location manually from now on.
2: Given what Charlotte said about trusting the Met Office, I should have asked our very own Met Office guest, Claire, about whether we're going to get a sunny summer or not. I was really consumed with why May has been so cold that I forgot to ask. It has been pretty cold, hasn't it? Yeah, especially if you compare it to last May, when I seem to remember the temperatures were, what, 27 degrees? Do you remember the London Marathon? People were keeling over because oh, yeah. it was so hot. That's how hot it was, and it's just been rubbish this May by Not comparison. that we want to wish for London Marathon runners to keel over. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't that's a good to point. <laughs> I just like to bathe in that glorious sunshine. I know, yeah. The only thing I will add is just to say thank you to our guests. They were Claire Nazir and Charlotte G., We really enjoy teaming up
0: to produce science with everything, so let us know if there are stories out there that we should be collaborating on. You can send us an email to either chipspodcast at theguardian.com or scienceweekly at theguardian.com. I'm jordan Erica Weber, And I'm Grey Jackson. Until next time, goodbye.
1: For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.